This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Your annual doctor's or wellness visit may not be enough to prevent diseases like cancer. Daily health and lifestyle choices are the key to cancer prevention. But what are these lifestyle choices? What is important? In It's Time You Knew, board-certified gynecological oncologist Dr. Valine Wright offers simple and straightforward tools to help women listen to their own body, and in doing so, take control of their own health and well-being. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncogene, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website at oncogene.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright. Dr. Wright is a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Lehi Health in Boston. This is the Yonkazine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncazine, at www.oncazine.com. Dr. Wright, welcome to the Oncazine Brief. Thank you. I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you. Likewise. Now, in the book you wrote, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer, you tell the true story of women, women who move from symptoms to diagnosis and from treatment to recovery from cancer. But you start your book with one very important fact, a fact that everyone should know about, and that is that it's important to listen to your own body, because your own body may want to tell you something about your health. Tell me a little bit more about that. I really think it's important that we pay attention to our own bodies. We get busy, distracted, and especially I think as women, we're caring for our children, our spouses, we have jobs pets, things that distract us from really paying attention to ourselves. And it's kind of like when you're on the airplane and they show you that commercial that you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. So if, if you're not healthy, it's really hard to take care of other people well. And a lot of the Unfortunately, a lot of the patients that I see in, in gynecology, they've had symptoms for a long time that have been dismissed uh, or overlooked, um, sometimes by the patients Denial can sometimes be strong. We don't want to face our fears. But also sometimes just from interacting with the medical system, there's often a delay in diagnosis. For many women's cancer, the delay is over a year, not just months. So that was, again, one of the motivations for for writing this book. Now, in addition to the fact that women should listen to their own body, you also write about your sister, Debbie, who sadly passed away from ovarian cancer. Why was it important to include that in this book? And what were some of the important lessons that your sister gave you? Sure, that's a, that's a good question. And it's really the reason the book was written is my sister. So as a gynecologic oncologist, that means I specialize in treating women's cancers. And the cancers I treat are ovarian, fallopian tube, uterine, cervix, vulva, vaginal cancers. Unfortunately, ovarian and fallopian tube cancers, they really have no screening tests. 
And on average, it's over a year before women get diagnosed um, with ovarian cancer when they we do develop symptoms. So, you know, my sister developed ovarian cancer and, you know, it was devastating because there was nothing really I could do to prevent her, her loss. And I had to support her as best I could during the surgery and sort of the follow-up and treatment treatment phases. But being with her those times, it just taught me so much. It's like there's so many things that cancer does. It's not just the patient we see in the room. It impacts the entire family. It kind of ripples through, not just for my sister, but um, there's often biases that we all have that can impact how we receive care, when we receive care, when we're motivated or we decide to go and seek treatment. And I really thought it was uh, the best way to honor her and her memory to write this book. One of the frustrating things when my sister was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, so for listeners, any woman who has a diagnosis of ovarian cancer should be offered genetic testing. That's a national guideline in the U.S. and accepted standard. And then there's also something called cascade testing so that if you are affected and diagnosed with ovarian cancer that has a a family component or a mutation that predisposes, then your family member should be tested for that same mutation. So in our family, um, you know, I dedicated my professional career to treating these cancers. So I know quite a bit about the genetics of ovarian cancer. My sister didn't end up having an identified mutation, and that was several years ago, and our knowledge of genetics changes almost on an annual basis because of how fast-paced the scientific discoveries come. But I do know ovarian and fallopian tube cancers, we've tried for years with research to find tests that can detect ovarian cancer early because if it's diagnosed early, the cure rate actually is really very good. There's about a 95% survival rate for stage one disease. But most women are diagnosed at stage three. And at that point, survival is really at five years, only about 50%. And we don't have a screening test. In people who are high risk based on family history, that's really the most predictive um, risk factor. There are some other risk factors as well. But there's no screening test. An ultrasound or even a CA-125 done every six months will not detect ovarian cancer early where it's a recommended screening test. But what we do know is if you are at high risk and have a documented germ, germline mutation that's been identified, such as BRCA1 or BRCA2 or really positive family history, risk-reducing surgery can certainly save lives. And with our family history, we do have some cancer in our family, but the genetic testing was negative. And so risk-reducing surgery would be a laparoscopic surgery where tubes and ovaries are removed. And so I have three other, I have three sisters. So my older sister, myself, and two younger sisters. So then my younger sister was really reluctant to have this surgery done because she wasn't close to menopause and there's adverse effects for having menopause early. And basically she eventually had the surgery. She was diagnosed with fallopian tube cancer in its earliest form, what we call in situ disease, which saved her life. And we were really surprised that it came back that way. But just having that knowledge was critical, right? And she had seen some primary care doctors and talked to other people who said, oh, of course, it's not necessary for you to have risk-reducing surgery. So I think it's really important. Often people 
family history isn't that reliable. We have smaller family size. Sometimes people don't talk about cancer in their families. So our genetic risk is important to know and to talk to our family members about what cancers run, you know, what cancers family members have. And there are screening tests that you can do to see if you qualify for genetic testing. It's hard because physicians are really busy with limited time, but there's simple screening tests or apps that people can fill out and it will better identify who should get genetic testing and be considered to be referred to a genetic counselor. So I I was just a little frustrated when people get misinformation or don't know their risk. And And if you know your risk and you don't want to have risk reducing surgery and you elect not to, that's fine. But I think it's important to have all the information to make the best decisions. Right. I totally agree that having the right information is the first step to a cure. Or better yet, the right information is key in preventing cancer. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncogen Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright. Dr. Wright is a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Lehi Health in Boston. We talk about Dr. Wright's book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. I'm Peter Hofland. And this is the Youngest in Brief. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Youngest in Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Youngest in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright, a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Lehi Health in Boston. Now, in the book, you write about the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. A lot of people may think about these two genes in lights of breast cancer, but there is a link between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Tell me a little bit about that link. Yes, there there is definitely a, a link. So, BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes were discovered by Mary Claire King, and she wrote an article in JAMA, I think it was back in 2016, that advocated screening all women at age 30 for these gene mutations, and then people who tested positive to be followed in a high-risk clinic. Because, you know, we don't, not everyone that has a gene mutation is going to actually develop the cancer, but we can better quantify risk and then stratify for for what interventions could be considered. It's important for people to know too that there are other ways to decrease your risk of these cancers besides risk-reducing surgery. Being on a birth control pill, for example, decreases your risk of ovarian cancer. It's a little controversial about breast cancer, but birth control pills also decrease your risk of uterine cancer as well. The other thing that's really important for women to understand, and this was discovered by looking at surgical specimens tubes and ovaries from women who participated in research that were known to be gene positive and had tubes and ovaries removed, 
it was discovered that a lot of the cancers that we call ovarian cancer actually start in the fallopian tube as a tiny microscopic tumor in the thimbriated end of the tube near the ovary. And cells that are shed or exfoliated land on the ovary, create a larger tumor mass. And then historically, we've been calling that ovarian cancer and not recognizing it actually started in the fallopian tube. So that's, that's fascinating because if we, you know, we, we knew historically that women who had their tubes tied had a decreased risk of ovarian cancer. But now that we know the reason for that is the precursor lesion in some types, not all types, but some types of ovarian cancer is the distal end of the floating tube. Surgical practice has changed and we no longer tie tubes, we remove tubes. And in addition to that, if women have finished having children and they need to have a gynecologic surgery for another reason, such as a fibroid, for example, or a benign cyst that doesn't require the whole ovary to be removed, the tubes can be removed as a risk-reducing surgery. It's called opportunist salpingectomy is the medical term. So just being aware of that and speaking up and asking because maybe, you know, Maybe your doctor didn't offer it to you. And maybe when you're going in for contraception, cancer risk reduction can be part of the conversation. Like, are you at risk for a certain cancer? And will what you do for birth control have an impact on your cancer risk? Now, is this something that you would recommend every physician to initiate? Or is this something patients themselves should initiate when they are talking to their doctors? I think patients can initiate with both ways. That's kind of the point of my book. We have to have better conversations between patients and doctors and come up with patient-centered care solutions. I mean, there's a lot of times that as a doctor, we recommend things and the patient walks out the door and has no intention of doing what we say. And we believe that, yes, of course, they're going to do that, right? Um, The best example of that, historically, people use the example of hormone replacement therapy. We often prescribe hormone replacement therapy, but many women... Less than, I think it's about a quarter of women don't ever fill the prescription because they read the warning on it saying it can cause breast cancer. More recently, the better example of that is chemotherapy for breast cancers, such as like tamoxifen and some of the aromatase inhibitors. There's a paper that was from Duke University recently showed that many women aren't taking their oral agents prescribed for the indication of breast cancer because of side effects. And we're assuming that they are. So it's important that we're able to have honest conversations on both sides so that we get, so that we really know what's going on and understand each other's goals. Now, earlier in the program, you mentioned that today there are no reliable screening tests or tools for ovarian cancer. And so this makes it a little bit more difficult for doctors to see what is going on, right? But that doesn't mean that there are no specific symptoms. You write about the fact that many women may notice these symptoms, but describe them to other reasons, like being tired, their monthly cycle, or they may associate their discomfort with more common conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, urinary tract infections, or maybe acid reflux or similar digestive conditions, and even back pain caused by some injury other than cancer. Because they don't necessarily pay attention to potentially important symptoms, and as a result don't seek treatment early enough, Many women are diagnosed with ovarian cancer in a later stage when treatment is more difficult. So we did talk a little bit about the importance of listening to your own body. So in this particular case, is that something you encourage women in general to do? I mean, because if they did, they would talk to their doctor earlier, right? Right. So I think what happens a lot of times for women 
the delayed or misdiagnosis becomes from normalizing something that's not really normal. So if people are having abnormal bleeding and they've just gotten used to it and they've been told when they're younger um, that it's a side effect of birth control or that they have fibroid disease and their menstrual cycle is abnormal because of fibroids, they, they may start to tolerate those symptoms because it's not really interfering with their daily activities, yet it's not completely normal. So as a, a G1 oncologist, I'm kind of at the end of the line because they're going to see other people before they see me. But often, particularly around the perimenopause, where you can have hormonal imbalance uh, as a cause of bleeding, we sometimes see misdiagnoses there where people um, don't recognize the or they assume it's hormonal change or menopause and they don't consider a diagnosis of cancer. So that comes into play, particularly with uterine cancer. Uterine cancer is the most common gynecologic cancer in the U.S. Its rate is increasing and it's in part because it's an obesity-related cancer. And so as we see the obesity pandemic um, rise, we also have had an increase in the incidence of uterine cancer. And the age cohort with the largest increase are uh, young women between 25 and 40. And historically, uterine cancer, only 5% of cases would be diagnosed before age 40. And and that's increased in part because of obesity. And obesity is, um, is uh, directly correlated to the risk of uterine cancer. If you look at all cancers and obesity, and there's more than sort of 16 obesity-related cancer. But if you look at all cancers, uterine cancer is number one with a linear correlation. Even being 15 pounds overweight can increase your cancer risk for uterine cancer. The reason I mention that is people don't think of doing an endometrial biopsy or sampling the, line of the u- lining of the uterus in young women because people kind of think, oh, uterine cancer, that's a postmenopausal diagnosis. We don't see that. So just those are our biases, right? And if people have abnormal bleeding, there should be a, a evaluation of it and it should be resolved. Um, if it's from hormone therapy, there's a way that you, over time with your doctor, you can sort, sort that out. But particularly in women who are over 30 even and they're overweight, if they're having issues with abnormal bleeding, it's important to consider precursors to uterine cancer cancer and uterine cancers in, in that differential diagnosis so that the diagnosis isn't delayed. And in general, if, if there's an underlying cancer, symptoms don't come and go. They generally get worse over time. And I think people get frustrated sometimes and they didn't get a solution to the abnormal bleeding. So then they see another doctor rather than go back. And it's fine to get a second opinion, but you need your problem. You, you want to address the symptoms and the symptoms, you should be able to resolve them. And if you can't, then you need to probably get a second opinion. That is what I sometimes hear, both positive and negative, that it is about the relationship between a patient and her doctor, or it may be the fear of addressing something that may not be right, or in some cases, that a particular doctor's bedside manners are not necessarily appealing to one particular patient or their family. But what should you say to someone who's using this as an excuse to not pay attention to this at all? What is the key in the relationship between a patient and her doctor? I mean, I think the most important thing in a patient-doctor relationship is trust, right? And so it's not that you shouldn't pay attention to what your doctor say. I, I 
don't mean to imply that uh, that at all. But I think a lot of times doctors will prescribe something, for example, I guess the best example I can give is vulvar cancers, where doctors, the patient comes in and the main symptom for vulvar cancer is itching, vulvar itching. And so sometimes the patients are seen and given a, are seen but not examined and given a cream thinking it's a yeast infection. And that's really common and vulvar cancer is really rare. So maybe your doctor gives you a prescription for a yeast infection, but you didn't get an exam and you didn't ask for the exam, but you know there's something wrong and you've already tried something over the counter and it didn't work. Like you should really be examined if you're going to see the doctor for a symptom, right? We, it's hard to diagnose things. It's just like in, I guess in, in medical school, they made a point of making sure that the patient got undressed so we could do a full physical exam with, you know, appropriate gowning and, and whatnot. But part of our diagnosis comes from physical exam. And so not doing an exam when you're coming in for a gynecologic problem is an issue because you could miss something. And so patients also have to, you know, it's easy as a patient, you don't want to be examined. It's cold, it's uncomfortable, but you have symptoms. And if you really want to get the best answer, you probably need to have a gynecologic exam. And I guess that this depends on the trust between the patient and her doctor, right? And how comfortable a patient is with her doctor. So if I understand this correctly, the most important part of this, the first thing, is to make sure that you know your doctor, build trust, and make sure that as a patient, you feel comfortable with the person who is going to help you stay healthy. And if something is not right, you can trust your doctor to help you. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Dr. Valina Wright, a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel at Leahy Health in Boston. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright, a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Leahy Health in Boston. In this episode of the Yonkazine Brief, we talk about Dr. Valina Wright's book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choice to Prevent Women's Cancer. In a book, Dr. Wright offers simple and straightforward tools to help women listen to their own body and in doing so, take control of their health and well-being. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brave. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. One of the things you've also mentioned in your book is a misconception about the impact of obesity. So someone may say, I'm overweight, but my doctor says I'm healthy. But you argue that this may not necessarily be the case. So obesity affects our whole bodies, and the rate of obesity is increasing. It's estimated, I think, by the year 2030, almost three quarters. No, let's see. I don't remember the exact reference, sorry, but there's a lot of people. And I think what happens, people normalize that. It's the same thing, right? And 
obesity affects our entire body. And it puts, like, as a GYN oncologist, I see the comorbidities from it, especially, you know, I see uterine cancer as a result. We see uh, fatty liver uh, with cirrhosis that's starting to surpass alcoholic cirrhosis as the most common cause of liver failure in the United States. It affects the hormones in your body when you're overweight. So your hormone profile is off just by be- being overweight. And so then that abnormal hormone profile also predisposes to some cancers. You know, when you look at obesity, uh, men to women, women are three times more likely to be and suffer from medical complications of obesity than men. And some of that is related to the hormonal impact and the diagnosis of, of uterine cancer. The excess obesity also puts a lot of weight on joints. And so knee replacements, decreased mobility, sleep apnea, all of those things are are things that do happen to people from obesity. And you can, you can feel well, and some people are athletic and um, not impacted by obesity in the same way. But in general, obesity is not good for our bodies. <laughs> and even as Someone that is is obese or overweight and needs medical care it can complicate Medicare medical care, particularly surgical care, because the tissues of the body, if we have to make surgical incisions, you're more predisposed to poor wound healing and infections, and it also impacts your immune system. So it's hard because people divide the body up into different disease states, and instead we should in some I think some ways think of our overall health and our enjoyment of life. And it's an individual decision how they want to live their life and the choices they make. But your health is your most important asset. And what you do every day to improve your health or take care of your health is going to have a huge impact. And our daily habits have a much greater impact than going to the doctor once a year for a checkup or every six months for a checkup. And I think that's one of the ways that healthcare needs to improve is to address these lifestyle, lifestyle, what we refer to as lifestyle medicine, to better support patients so that they understand better the impact of lifestyle, diet, nutrition, exercise, all of those things. They're not really in the medical field traditionally because we're a disease-based model of care, but they should be because it's more important to prevent problems than to try and play catch-up and, and treat them. And so if people understood that, I think we, you know, they have a better better chance of not ending up in my office, I hope, you know, with a cancer diagnosis. So the physician most people see first is the primary care physician or GP and not an oncologist. So the primary care physicians basically become their coach, a lifestyle coach. And as a part of that, the primary care physician not only treats diseases, but helps their patients in preventing diseases, help them to stay healthy by preemptively checking or screening. But then ultimately, if something goes wrong, make sure that a patient receives optimal treatment. Is that what you mean? I think that's, yeah, that's a a, a nice way to explain it. I also think, though, that patients do need to take responsibility for their own health and understand their own health more because they're going to be their own best advocate. And there's resources in the community because obviously the doctor's time is 
pretty limited and it's a costly healthcare system. So I think community supports um, participating in some YMCA group exercises doesn't have to be something expensive, but making the right choices at the, you know, grocery store, not buying things with labels, but eating healthy, you know, vegetable based diet, these common sense things that we kind of all know, but don't necessarily do on a consistent basis. And it's, it's all about consistency and habits and motivation to stay healthy. Yeah, and that is obviously not only dealing with cancer, but it is also important in dealing with cardiovascular disease or helping a patient avoid diabetes or other diseases, right? That's exactly it. Because so uterine cancer, if that's our number one cancer that we treat, and the majority of that cancer, more than 50, up to 50% is related to obesity and metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia hirsutism, that, that conglomerate of symptoms. And cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of both men and women, followed by cancer. And so those um, half of those cases in, in those metabolic syndrome and those risk factors are identical. So we shouldn't just be focusing on uterine cancer. We should be focusing on health as a, a more relevant topic to people because if we're waiting and just saying, oh, you need to do this to prevent uterine cancer, that's not that effective. What we want to do instead is motivate people to develop healthy habits that will allow them to enjoy their life better and not end up with comorbidities that are is that potentially can impact the quality of their lives. Over the past few years, the arsenal of tools to treat patients who are diagnosed with cancer is only growing. And there are more and more tools to help prevent cancer. And while we are not there yet with ovarian cancer, one tool that has helped prevent cancers in some cases is the HPV vaccine. Something that we've seen over the last few years, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic and vaccines designed to prevent COVID-19 or make COVID-19 better treatable as a disease, is a hesitancy towards vaccines. So tell me a little bit about vaccines Right. I think people now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, are more familiar with viruses. What's interesting, the World Health Organization in 2019, vaccine hesitancy was the number one global threat of the top 10 things. So vaccinations can have a huge impact on public health. And they impact not only our health, but the people around us in our family and our communities, because um, viruses Spread. And the HPV vaccine, HPV stands for human papillomavirus. It's the most common sexually transmitted infection in the U.S. and worldwide. Um, many people will be exposed to HPV, but I'm sure you haven't heard your friends volunteer that information <laughs> because there's a little bit of a stigma associated with that, right? Yes, I believe that. So only if, if 80% of the population is exposed, you know, that's a... That's a, a a pool of people, obviously, who are at some risk for the infection becoming a risk factor for subsequent cancers. And when the vaccine first came out, it was women that were um, the public service announcements targeted women because it was recognized as the main risk factor for cervix cancer. But in fact, HPV-related cancers, there's five of them. It's cervix cancer, vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer, what we call lower genital tract cancers in women anal cancer. And now in 
the U.S., the most common HPV-related can- cancer that's recognized is oral pharyngeal cancer, and that affects men more than women. So having HPV vaccination dramatically decreases your risk of five different cancers that affect both men and women. So it should be both men and women that get vaccinated. And the most effective time for vaccination is uh, 9 to 12, where pediatricians or school nurses, depending on what country you live in, will give two doses six months apart. You can vaccinate later, age 15 to 26, but it requires three doses at one, two, and six months apart. What has happened recently, the FDA approved HPV vaccination for adults up to age 45 that were not previously uh, vaccinated because of the recognized risk with oropharyngeal cancers and hopefully preventing that. But I, I want to make the point, HPV vaccination doesn't treat a, an established cancer. It's, it's only prevention. Let's take a break. If you're just joining us, in this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright. Dr. Wright is a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Lehi Health in Boston. We talk about Dr. Wright's book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. For the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Because sarcoma is cancer. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is bringing hope to the families whose lives have been turned upside down by a cancer they had never heard of until diagnosis. Please join us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Valina Wright, a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel at Lehi Health in Boston. Now, in your book, you write about the relationship between parents and their children, in this case, between a mother and her daughter and their conversation about the HPV vaccines. That conversation might be difficult at times. In your book, you write about this, and I guess this may be an eye-opener for some people, but it is important to have this conversation. For example, when the HPV vaccine was first introduced, some people decided against this option because they feared it would promote sexual promiscuity. But you argue that this is not the case. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, so a lot of people thought when HPV vaccine came out, and we've you know studies to document this, that HPV vaccination might increase sexual promiscuity. But there's absolutely no data to support that. And if you think of it, when you're a kid and you're getting vaccinated in the school, your pediatrician's office, and then you're 18 or 19, 10 years later, I'm sure you're not thinking about the HPV vaccine that your parents gave you in childhood. <laughs> Or at least, at least let's, let's hope not. That's right. Right? Because I think it's important to recognize that our sexual health is, is an important part of our overall health. And so having HPV vaccination 
doesn't impact sexual behaviors. It just prevents us from developing HPV-related cancers. And I think it's important to make that clear. In addition, there are there are studies that showed that a lot of people didn't believe HPV vaccination was indicated for their sons because their sons couldn't get cervix cancer, but their sons can get oral pharyngeal and anal cancers. So I don't think that was part of the initial public service announcement. It was sort of targeting young women more than men when it was first introduced. So the same concept for vaccination for COVID-19, it's herd immunity. And, you know, obviously the transmission is different. It's not a respiratory disease. It's a sexually transmitted disease. But sometimes it's very hard to identify risk. Viruses are invisible and you can have HPV infection and have no symptoms. We're starting to see primary HPV screening for cervix cancer in this country. The guidelines for how we screen for cervix cancer are in transition. The American Cancer Society um, recommends primary HPV screening now. Historically, it's always been the PAP and some form of co-testing. So a PAP plus an HPV after 30 is how we screen. But recognizing the underlying biology of cervix cancer, it's important, I think, that people get HPV vaccine. I mean, vaccines can prevent cancer. Herd immunity, just like in COVID-19, if your partner has been vaccinated um, for HPV and you've been vaccinated for HPV, you're both really unlikely to contract HPV. Right. And that's basically the power of vaccines, correct? Now, one of the things that you've already said, but it's important to understand, is about a misconception that if you don't have any symptoms, you're okay that you're healthy. But again, that is not entirely true, correct? Right. So especially with vulvar cancer, for example, when you come in and get a checkup, just like when you go to the dermatologist to get your skin examined for skin cancers, the dermatologist may see a lesion on your skin that's suspicious and can be cancer that's not causing any symptoms. So the same thing can happen on the vulvar skin. It's just the vulvar skin is in a different part of your body and it's not necessarily being examined. I think that's the clearest example that I can, can give you. But just by having a gynecologic exam, we do find things on exam sometimes that we wouldn't otherwise find. There's also controversy about that in women's health right now. Uh, the American Medical Association was put a statement that a annual pelvic exam in the absence of symptoms wasn't necessary. Now, I don't endorse that. I think that going to your doctor and having an annual exam, you can find things that are asymptomatic that can make a difference. It's just part of taking care of yourself. So not having symptoms doesn't mean that everything is fine. But having symptoms in particular, you shouldn't just stay home and Google and worry about them because 80% of what we worry about never comes to fruition. Most of, most of the time, it's nothing. So I guess my point is, don't stay home and worry about health symptoms. Just go to your physician and get them checked. Or now, with the COVID pandemic, even telehealth makes it more accessible for you to have professional medical advice. And if there are symptoms that are persisting, particularly symptoms that are lasting more than two to three weeks, not that's significant. You know, everyone sometimes will have a little... GI upset or indigestion from something they ate, but those symptoms generally don't linger. So for the quality of our lives, we need to address 
our health and symptoms rather than deny or ignore them or put them off because we're too busy. And it's important because if we diagnose a cancer early, the prognosis is so much better than if we diagnose it late. It can be the difference between surgery alone for some cancers or a surgery plus the need for chemotherapy and or radiation. So we really want to diagnose cancers early, ideally pick them up in screening by before they're even symptomatic. But if people have symptoms, recognize those symptoms, get them evaluated so you're diagnosed early and get treatment started because cancers don't go away with time. You know, cancers grow independent of a COVID-19 pandemic. And there's a, there's a paper from Kaiser in California that for the same time interval a year ago uh, last spring com- compared to more recently, the number of uterine cancers diagnosed was decreased by a third. And so we know that people are putting off or ignoring symptoms rather than coming in to get evaluated. And sometimes it may just be that spotting after menopause or some abnormal bleeding and it happened it happened last month and now it's another month and it's gone by and oh yeah, this is kind of bothering me. But it's it's just so easy to put things off in a pandemic. So I think that people need to pay attention to their bodies and be their own best advocate. Come in and get these tests and or have the conversation really with their doctors to make sure that everything is fine. And that is where we started the program. That is why it's important to listen to your own body. And that is obviously not something that is only important for women, but it is also important for men. So if you are noticing any symptoms, listen to your own body. Because if there are things that are not entirely right, it's important to see a doctor. Now, in your book about women's health, you reserve a special role for other people, the partners in their lives. I would like to say a couple of the chapters in there in the book, because the way I, the book is written is very short stories about women and you know, different diagnoses. But in some of the stories, it was the men that or their partners that made them, didn't make them, but suggested that they finally go to see the doctor. And in some cases, the woman was in denial or too busy or whatever. And it was her husband that eventually brought her to see me in the office. So it's important that men recognize some of these abnormal symptoms too and not let the people they care and love love suffer. Like get it checked out. Just go and have the exam, get it checked out. Hopefully it's nothing and then you can stop worrying about it because who wants to waste their time worrying about something that doesn't exist? Right. I honestly must say that in reading this book myself, there were a few eye-openers, certainly things that I did not know that I was not aware of or that I've never considered. And while I believe that every woman should read this book, I really think that every man should also read this book. <laughs> That's right. So I also have a re- website, com, And there's an email list that gives the top five ways to prevent cancer. And it's, it's really sort of lifestyle oriented medicine that you could check out as well. And that's a perfect conclusion of our interview today. Dr. Valina Wright is the author of It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. The book is available via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere where you buy good books. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your time, Peter. In this episode of The Oncogene Brief, I spoke with Dr. Valina Wright. Dr. Wright is a gynecological oncologist at Beth Israel Lay Health in Boston. 
we spoke about the importance of listening to your own body and to talk to your doctor when it matters. We spoke about how to adopt habits to lower the risk of cancer, the role of weight and diet, as well as sleep and exercise. In her book, Dr. Wright gives her patients and anyone who wants to listen the tools they need to prevent cancer and make the right choices to improve health and well-being. Dr. Wright's book, It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer, is available via your favorite retailer, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and others. For more information, visit Dr. Wright's website at valinawrightmd.com. For us here at the Oncosim Brave, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can listen to this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find good podcasts. For more information about supporting the Oncogene Brief, visit our website at oncogene.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Oncazine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncazine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. <laughs>